Good morning. Hey, a special warm welcome to any of you who might be visiting our church family this morning. I was really encouraged when, uh, during the transition time between services, ran into a, a couple that's visiting the Bible Church for the very first time from up north, and, uh, and I asked if they've ever been to the Bible Church. No, I said, well, how'd you find us? He says, well, we just we found uh, the word Bible in your name. We figured it would be a good place to come, and uh, that's a great thought, isn't it? Love that thought. Yeah. Well, we're glad that you're with us today. Um, take your Bible, if you wouldn't mind, and join me in the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where I'd invite you to go. And if you got out of the house without your Bible today, just raise your hand. We can uh, share a Bible that we keep in the back just for that purpose for you, and that'll help you get more out of our time. And there's a little note page in the bulletin, if you wouldn't mind grabbing that as well. Looks like that. And uh, that'll get you started. And before we get going, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and so I'm just curious enough to ask, how many of you are rooting for Seattle today? Show of hands. Got Seattle? Okay, we got some Seattle folks. How many New England fans do we have? Hmm, I don't know. How many of you don't really care one way or the other? Oh, by far the greatest group here is those who don't care. (laughs) Well, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and... And I don't know if you knew this or not, but during last year's Super Bowl, there was another football game that was played. Uh, A few have heard about this game. In fact, I only recently learned about it myself. It was a game between the big animals and the small animals. Have you heard about this one? Haven't heard about this game. Yeah, big game. The the big animals were were just crushing the small animals uh, through the first half of the game, and And so at halftime, the small animals coach made this impassioned speech to try to rally his team. And and so the the second half starts, and the big animals have the ball. And and on the first play, the elephant just gets stopped for no gain. The second play, the rhino is stopped for no gain. And on the third down, the hippo is thrown for a five-yard loss. Well, that hadn't been the first half story, and so the big animals called a timeout, and the little animals run over to the sideline. They gather around their coach, and he asks excitedly, Who stopped the elephant? I did, said the centipede. (laughs) Who stopped the rhino? Uh, That was me too, coach, said the centipede. And the hippo? Yeah, that was me also, said the centipede. Well, where were you during the first half? And the centipede said, I was getting my ankles taped. (laughs) I only told that joke for one reason, folks, and that is because it can only get better from here, right? (laughs) At least you're hoping so, right? Well, on this Super Bowl Sunday, we do have more important things to talk about than football. As I stand before you this morning... There is between you and me this this table. And on this table, there uh, are some polished brass plates. And those plates, as you know, hold within them bread and many small cups filled with, with grape juice. And for anyone who has been long in the church, this is not an unusual part of a Sunday morning. In fact, here at the Bible Church, this is... A feature, this table as you see it before us, is a feature that we fully expect to see at least once a month, sometimes more. Uh, 
We commonly refer to it as the communion table or maybe as the Lord's table or the table of remembrance. And as you could tell by the, the little note page that you have, uh, this table of remembering uh, is where we're going to spend our time together this morning on this Super Sunday. All Sundays are super, aren't they, if you know Jesus? But on this day, we're going to spend time around the Lord's table, the table of remembering. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as perhaps you know, in Scripture has left us with a, a mountain of instruction for how to do life in a fallen, sinful world, how to love God together well, how to invest in each other with the love of Jesus, how to find places where we can serve out of our love for the Lord and, and love for one another, and, and how to enlarge God's kingdom here in his world. And woven into this mountain of instruction that we have from Jesus in the scriptures, there are two very specific commands, two straight from Jesus to us commands that he wants us as his followers, as his church, to observe. And we sometimes refer to these two commands as the two ordinances of the church, if you've ever heard that term. Jesus says, Make it possible for those who follow me in faith to publicly declare their love and their devotion to me in a special way through something called baptism. I want my people to be baptized. It's one of the ordinances, one of his commands. Secondly, he says, collectively, as my church gathered, remember my death on the cross for you often. Communion. Baptism. And communion, two very special, very specific commands, not suggestions, but commands from Jesus to us, his church. Now, if you have never been baptized, you've committed your life to Jesus in simple saving faith, perhaps recently or, or maybe not so recently, but Jesus is in this moment your Lord and your Savior through faith. You're, you're not relying anymore uh, on your good work, works or anything else in your life to address the sin issue that is in your life as if by doing that you could gain entrance into God's heaven. You're not trusting uh, in any goodness in yourself. You are trusting wholly and completely on the blood of Jesus that was shed for you at the cross to cover the sin in your life and you're relying only on the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees that because he lives, you live. If you believe that and you've not been baptized yet in your Christian life, Jesus says, this is something I want you to do. It's not a suggestion. This is something I want you to do for me, but it's also something I want you to do for you. I hung publicly between heaven and earth for you. It is a small thing for me to ask you to boldly declare your faith in me in a public way through baptism. And of course, we all know that baptism does not save. Only Jesus saves. But it is something that Jesus wants us to do. It honors him. It glorifies him. It grounds our faith even more solidly into him as we follow in obedience to this command. And so if, if you're here today and you have never been baptized, but Jesus is your Lord and Savior, let's make that happen for you. 
Let's talk about that together. You can, can find me. You can find Brandon. Uh, let us know that this is something that you would like to do in your life, and we will make this happen soon for you. And as a church family, celebrate this um, command with you in your life. But it is that other command, the one to remember Jesus' death on the cross for us, that, that really comes into view for us this morning. And what's really kind of cool for me on a personal level uh, as we take up this topic together is that I know that no one present here today who is a lover of Jesus is going to be able to say, oh, you know, Tim's talking about stuff that really doesn't scratch where I itch today. Uh, it's really not relevant to me today. That simply cannot be true. There is never a bad time to talk about things that point us to Jesus, correct? Never a bad time for that. But in truth, no lover of the Lord Jesus can ever be very far in heart or in mind from this very special table. If we're in Jesus through, through saving faith today, this table matters to us, right? It, it, it really must matter to us. And we need to know why it matters as well. So your Bible is open now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, we find the most concentrated, and I guess I, guess I would also add the, the longest passage in Scripture that deals with the subject of communion. The Apostle Paul is writing to a first century church that is struggling uh, in, in, on so many levels. If Paul had a problem child church, well, then the church at Corinth would be the problem child for him. And the reason for this uh, is largely because though these are fairly new Christians, maybe three years old in the Lord perhaps, uh, they're having a very difficult time getting their old life out of their life in Jesus. They're constantly bringing the world's ways into their Christian life and their church life, and it's just wreaking havoc. And, and so Paul writes this church family to address a number of issues where this is going on. That's still a challenge for us today, is it not? 2,000 years separated, it's just tough to keep the world from coming in, isn't it? And so we can empathize with our Corinthian brothers from two centuries or two, two millennia ago. Now, these brothers and sisters would, would divide, for example, into various factions as they would follow personalities rather than Jesus. And Paul takes up that issue in chapter 3. They were confused about how to conduct themselves morally in relationships, and so Paul will address that in chapters 5 and 6. They'll be confused about what marriage looks like under God's lordship, and so Paul writes about that in chapter 7. And they'll be confused about the role of, of expressing their, their freedom in Jesus without offending other people who maybe can't go into the directions that they go with their spiritual freedom. How do I balance my personal freedom with my love for, for those in my church who maybe don't have the freedom that I feel? That's chapters 8, 9, and 10. There will be some that would be confused about the role that spiritual gifts play in your life, and that's chapters 12, 13, and 14. And then there was confusion in terms of this church's understanding of the resurrection and how that impacts your life in Jesus. That's chapter 15. So there is no shortage of problems that Paul wants to address in this letter. So in chapter 11, there is yet another problem. And it is the problem of how do you rightly 
remember Jesus' death on the cross. This church had really messed that up. And so Paul talks about that. Beginning at verse 17, you'll have no trouble quickly picking up on the tone with which Paul writes these words. There is a sadness. There is a, there is a pain that he feels with each stroke of the quill on the parchment. See if you don't hear it. Beginning at verse 17, I'll read. You follow along in your Bible. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And we'll stop right there. Is it not painfully evident that the brothers and sisters in Corinth are really confused in this arena of their shared life together? I mean, it just kind of falls off the page. It's as if Paul here holds up a mirror and he says, allow me to expose your hearts for a second as a church. Let me show you what you are doing at the the very moment when you are entering into one of the most sacred acts of Christian worship that there is participation in this, this table of remembering, remembering Jesus' death for you take a good look Paul might say for here is the true you and it's not a pretty sight it is a place in your church life filled with with grievous confusion you're coming together Paul says as a church and and when you do you're you're doing more damage than you are good that's verse 17 isn't it man how would you like that if if some outsider came into the I don't want Bible church and leveled that assessment. Hey, when you guys come together, you do more damage than good. Ouch. Ouch. 
But Paul's not being mean. He's, he's just being honest, and he can back up everything that he says. He notes how these Christians regularly gathered together to, to share a meal. Uh, it was supposed to be a, a love feast, an agape meal is what it was called, patterned after the meals that we see in the opening chapters of the book of Acts when the church was just beginning and the people would come together in a, a spirit of unity and, and mutual love and affection and they would, they would share a meal in their home together in, in, in their church and, and everybody was a part of that. Well, the Corinthians were getting together on a regular basis for a potluck. And there was nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, we do that. We do that, right? Although I, I, I almost hate to use the term potluck ever since the time I got reprimanded several years ago now uh, by a lady on a Sunday morning after we announced that we were going to be having a potluck supper together. She comes up to me after church and she says, uh, Pastor Tim, Christians don't believe in luck and pot is a whole new, has a whole new meaning today. So you can't use the word potluck. And I said, wow, uh, well, what, what should I say? And she said, tell them that we're having a multiple choice dinner. <laughs> a multiple choice dinner, really? Well, the Corinthians were sharing in a multiple choice meal after which the practice was to observe communion, to remember together as a church family the death of Jesus on the cross, part of their shared life as a church family. Although the dinner and the communion observance itself are, are distinctly different elements, uh, in this context the one follows quite naturally after the other. But, Paul says, the spirit of both the meal and the heart with which you approach the table of remembering is it's totally wrong. It's it's all wrong. Apparently there were several small cliques, factions, buddy buddy groups uh, within this church. And so while they gathered under one roof, calling themselves the Church of Corinth, they actually acted with within this uh, in these little cliques uh, as if they were in separate churches, in separate places. One group would bring food and, and only for their group. And then another group would bring food only for their group. And when everybody in their certain group arrived, well, then they all just dug in. They just started eating. They didn't wait. They didn't share that together. And, and, and pity the poor fellow or the, the poor family that didn't have anything to bring to the love feast and didn't fit into any one of the cliques. They just went hungry, sitting there watching all these other Christians eating. And the real extent of the problem is captured in verse 21 when Paul says, some of you pig out so much. That's not what he said, but that's, you get the idea. Some of you pig out so much that you actually get drunk on the wine that you bring while others sit in your midst hungry and thirsty. It's an awful scene, isn't it? I mean, you just imagine what that would be like. Hardly an attractive or an inviting environment for anyone who was considering the claims of Jesus. If you saw that, you'd go the other direction. And then it was after behaving in this way that the table of remembering was observed. And so everything about it is just messed up. The communion, the most sacred worship moment was made a joke. It was made a mockery. It was, 
It was turned into a ritual rather than into a genuine remembering of Jesus. And perhaps most disturbing was the fact that the Corinthians were apparently oblivious to the fact that this is what they were doing. They didn't even recognize this was what was going on. In verse 22, Paul says, don't you have homes to eat in? Look, if all you're going to do is come here and, and, and eat, well, you can do that at home. Stay home if you have no intentions of reflecting the character, the heart of Jesus in your fellowship. Jesus, who died for you, would certainly wait for everyone to arrive. He would make sure that all were made a part of that gathering. Nobody was going to be left out. He would share what he had with everyone, whether they had little or nothing. And and you can be sure that he'd be serving and not being served. That's the heart of Jesus. But that's not your heart. He ends the paragraph at the close of verse 22 by saying, Will I commend you for being a fragmented, immature, greedy, indulgent, uncaring church? I will not. Will I praise you for dragging the the sacred table of of remembrance uh, through the muck of your own self-indulgence, your selfishness? No way, Paul says. You're doing great damage to the name of Jesus and to your own fellowship. And, and, And... And if we just pause for a second here, what a poignant reminder, church family, of of how easy it is for things to go downhill when Jesus ceases to be the center, right? It is so easy for us to get off track. It can happen in any individual's life. It can happen to any church's life when Jesus is not the main thing. He had ceased to be the main thing. It's a timely warning for us. And so we would just in this moment cry out, Holy Spirit, help us here at Idaho Bible Church. Help us to keep Jesus at the center. May he always be the main thing. Amen? Amen. That will help us here and in every other part of our life together. Well, having held up this mirror of sorts in verses 17 to 22, letting the Corinthians see themselves in all their inglorious worst, Paul knows it's time to go back and talk about things he's already talked about with them. But they need a review because they've forgotten. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So he has already shared this in the past. And Paul says, what I'm about to tell you, I didn't get from any book. I didn't read it in the Gospels because they haven't been written yet. I didn't talk to any of the early disciples about this. This comes straight from Jesus to me and from me to you. And what this means for us is that verses 23 to 26 are actually the earliest description of the celebration of the Lord's table that we have in all of God's word. And it is none other than Jesus himself who gives us the details. That's pretty cool. So Paul says again, verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says on the eve of the cross, 
just hours away from Jesus hanging on the cross, he institutes this remarkable table of remembering. He was sharing with his disciples a last meal. Do you remember in an upper rented room in the city of Jerusalem? Again, hours before the cross. But you'll recall with me that this isn't just any ordinary meal that they're sharing. They are sharing what meal? The Passover meal, right. Yeah, that, this is Passover season. And so Jesus and his closest followers are, are sharing the Passover meal together. Very special memorial holiday in Jewish culture. It is to this very day, as you know. And the Passover remembers the great exodus out of Egypt by the Hebrew people under the leadership of Moses in the Old Testament. By the mighty hand of God, 400 years of of slavery and bondage by the Hebrews in the land of Egypt. It comes to an end. The Passover meal remembers how God brought his people from enslaving chains to an incredible freedom, from Egypt to a promised land, from a, a life that was a living death to a life that's really living. And they were remembering that. God didn't want his people to forget that great deliverance uh, in, in that time past. And so... For 1,400 years, right up to the time of Jesus, the people remembered every year this great deliverance by God with the Passover celebration. And it culminates with the meal. The bread used in this Passover meal recalled how the people had hastily made bread without any yeast as they prepared to leave Egypt. It also reminded them of God's miraculous provision of the manna, which kept Israel alive throughout its journey in the desert. God, had, God provided this manna every morning for Israel, and it was the way that they made a kind of a sweet bread, and, the, and then the people would, would eat that. For 40 years they ate that manna, bread, and they were sustained. They were kept alive. So on this night before the cross, Jesus, in one incredible moment, takes the unleavened bread of that Passover meal, bread that only moments before was so inseparably connected to divine deliverance, to life, and he changes it. He, he, he makes it represent himself. I am, he says in effect, the, the miraculous provision from God for you. I'm the way out of spiritual bondage. I'm your way into spiritual life, into spiritual freedom. In verse 24, he says, This bread is a symbol of my body, which is for you. Do this. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the Jewish mind, in Jewish thought, the body represented the whole person, everything that they were, everything that they stood for, everything that they did. So in effect, Jesus says in verse 24, let this bread symbolize all that I am. Let it symbolize the whole of my person given for you, for your deliverance, for your life, for your freedom. In fact, those two little words, for you, they deserve to be highlighted underlined, circled, starred, whatever you do in your Bible, they need to be noted so that you never read this passage again without noticing those two little words, for you. Jesus gave all of himself, his physical body, yes, but way more than that, his whole self, 
all of that, all that he is for us when he offered his body on the cross. All of me is for you. When we hold that little piece of bread in our fingertips here in just a few moments, church family, when we hold that little piece of bread in our hands, we need to remember that it stands for all of him for us. All of him for me. Withholding nothing. The cross. Jesus dies there for me. For you. And just as without bread the people could not live, Jesus was saying, without me you will not live. Not spiritually. Not eternally. I am for you. Highlight that. Two little word phrase in your Bible. And then after Jesus has taken the bread and turned it into a visual symbol of his body, Paul tells us that he likewise took up the cup of red wine that for 1,400 years has meant one thing and pointed to one thing, the blood of an innocent lamb. But now Jesus is going to change that too. He's going to change it forever. You remember the central feature of the whole Passover event that resulted in Israel's freedom in the Old Testament. Remember that moment? It was centered upon a tenth and final plague that God was going to bring on Egypt. Remember the moment? Sure. You've all seen Charlton Heston, right? You you know. The death of every firstborn in Egypt was that terrible tenth plague. To be protected, when the death angel passed over Egypt, every Hebrew family was to take an innocent little lamb, slay it, catch the blood of the lamb in a basin, and then take the blood of that lamb and apply it to the door frames of their homes. Remember the story? Sure. And then under the covering of this innocent blood, death would pass over Israel's families and they would be safe. And thus we get the name Passover. God wanted that moment remembered. The the blood of the innocent protected them. So Jesus takes the cup of red wine, symbolic of the blood of the Passover lamb, and he transfers this to his cup. He makes it his cup. In verse 25, in effect, he says, this cup will no longer point to an innocent animal sacrificed long ago. From now on, it will point to me as the true lamb of God who with his shed blood will take away the sin of the world. This cup will symbolize my lifeblood poured out on the cross in just a few hours to cover the sin that produces death in every single person's life. I'm the cup. My blood is the cup. In the Old Testament, God had made an agreement, a covenant between himself and sinful Israel. They could kill that innocent animal and offer the blood of that animal in their place and in a temporary way they could cover their sin. The blood of the innocent would pay for the life of the guilty. It was a covenant arrangement that God never intended would last forever. It would be just for a time and it would really just serve to point to a much greater, much bigger, much more important covenant. And so Jesus, by his blood shed on the cross, secures this brand new covenant between God and sinful mankind. And under the new covenant, any sinner, no matter how bad they might think they are, no no matter how enslaved to sin 
and death they have been. Now they can by placing their faith in Jesus' sinless life and in his blood poured out. They could have their sin covered forever. God's judgment passes over them and it falls squarely on Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And that's exactly the way Jesus wants it. That's exactly the way that God the Father planned it. With his body and with his blood, Jesus on the cross pays the penalty that takes away the judgment of a holy God for all the sin in your life, for all the sin in my life. It's a blood covering that never has to be offered again. How glorious is that? It's once for all. That's what Hebrews 9.28 says. So Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of many people. Your sin and mine. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, we live in the new covenant. Aren't you glad you live in the new covenant? Oh, man. I can't imagine what it would be like to live under that old covenant. Keeping livestock around just to deal with my sin issues. No way. Jesus says in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Why? To remember what I've done for you. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, the, the, the Passover, that was a great thing. And, and in Israel, it got Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery and out of bondage and out of death and ultimately into the promised land. It's a great thing. But all of that was simply to point you to me. Pointing to my death, my resurrection, because that's what gets you out of bondage to Satan. That sets you free from sin's enslaving power. It releases you from hell's claim on your soul, and it ultimately secures your place in heaven. The old Passover only provided for a physical freedom. My death provides for any who wants it an eternal spiritual freedom forever. I don't want you to forget that. Thus the table. And so when we want a powerful worship connection with God as our Savior, with God as our Deliverer, it isn't going to be by way of a Passover meal, is it? It's going to be by this, this, this table of remembering. That's our connecting place. Jesus takes this beautiful Passover feast on the night before he dies and he turns it into a memorial of his redeeming work. And we must come to this table with that understanding, aware that that's what's going on. The Corinthians missed it completely. Two times in the span of two verses, verse 24 and again in verse 25, Jesus says, remember this. Do this in remembrance of me. Not a suggestion, but a what? A command. A command. Now this is obviously very important to our Lord. He doesn't want us forgetting what it cost Him for us to have life and freedom and a future. You know, He never says how often we should observe this remembering table. And that's a good thing that we're not told how often because we would turn it into some kind of a, of a ritual instead of a remembering. So here at the Bible Church, we 
we come to this table often enough for us to never let the truths of Jesus get very far out of our awareness, but not so often that this table becomes thoughtlessly familiar and therefore unappreciated. So we, we find a place in there that lets us move in that, that space. Paul adds in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. Is that little phrase, until he comes, important? Well, you better believe it's important because the Holy Spirit is telling us that our time around the remembering table is not just so that we can look back at the day of the crucifixion of Jesus when we receive life by his death, but we are to regularly remember the Lord's death until he what? Comes, which is a reminder to us that he didn't stay dead, right? He's resurrected. He's alive today. And he's coming back. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Come. You can even come before the Super Bowl kicks off and we're okay with that. So we could say, this morning that a communion observance, which we're going to share in just a moment, is a celebration of the past, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a celebration in the present as we remember all that he is and uh, has been and is for us in, in this moment. And it's really a celebration of the future as we look for him to one day return and lay claim to what is rightfully his. We look back. We look into the present. We look into the future every time we come to this table. Now, because the Lord's table is all of this, and it's even way more than we're able to talk about here, the behavior of the Corinthians is made even more grievous, if you stop and think about it. At what is perhaps the most sacred worship moment that a body of Christians can collectively share in together, these believers in Corinth are blind, really blind to the significance of this table. They're defaming it, and they're dishonoring it. Jesus. As the closing words of chapter 11 make crystal clear, the Holy Spirit takes very, very seriously this, this place, this space in your life and mine. In fact, is it, let me just ask you this question, is it going too far to say that God stands guard over this table? Do you think he does? Do you think he's standing guard over it right now as it sits before us? I think the verses in Chapter 11, tell us that he does. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That sounds pretty serious to me, doesn't it, to you? Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let's do this. What, when someone burns an American flag or throws it on the ground and stomps on it, are they just dishonoring a piece of fabric? No, of course they're not. They're, they're dishonoring the, the, the symbol that stands for all that America is, right? They're dishonoring that. We, we make laws to protect the flag. It is way bigger than strips of red, white, and blue fabric. It, it represents America. It is no different when we come to this table. This table is way bigger than some brass utensils, some pieces of bread, and some cups filled with grape juice. 
It's way, way bigger than that, yes? So to come to this table carelessly, to come to this table uh, with little thought or regard uh, for it and what it represents, to, to come to this table with, with ongoing secret sin in your life, a flippant uh, lack of care for, for how you are living your daily life, outside these walls, to come to this table and partake of these elements and giving no thought to who and what you are doing, oh, that dishonors Jesus. And God watches over this table. It's a serious thing, brother, sister. It treats Jesus as insignificant. It betrays a a cheap estimation of his blood. It reveals a callous disregard for his body that was crucified. It makes a mockery of God's grace, his plan of salvation any time we approach this table with anything less than a deep, deep reverence and an awareness of what we are doing. And Paul wants these believers in Corinth to understand this. This table is so important to God, so important to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit. Verse 28, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's as if Paul says, give yourself a thorough spiritual shakedown before you come to this. Look at your life. Look at your heart. Look at your motives, your thoughts, your speech, your conduct, the way you are treating people, the way you are thinking about people, the way you're thinking about Jesus. Consider how you are living before you come to this table. And and the Corinthians had failed to do that. And and when you discover that there are things in your life that aren't right, that there's sin present, man, what do you do with that? Since we all sin, right? We We all come to this room sinners, right? What do we do? Well, when we find that sin, when we examine ourselves, when we address it, then we deal with it honestly. We admit it. We repent of it. We confess it. And then we cover it under the blood of Jesus, right? We deal with it biblically. We're saddened by its presence in our life. We're swift to put it under the blood of Jesus. And then we're in a right and holy place to truly enjoy the, 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 the freedom of worshiping Jesus in this setting with these elements. The Corinthians, unfortunately, were not in that place. And as a result, God, even at that moment, was disciplining some in this church, touching them with what verse 30 describes as illness, weakness, and even death. Now, God's word makes it very clear, church family, that those in Jesus by faith can never be eternally condemned. Agreed? But God is not opposed to severe discipline if that's what is required to get our attention back on Jesus. In fact, Hebrews 12.10 tells us that God disciplines us because he loves us so much. He may lay us out flat physically if that's what's required to get us back into step with Jesus. Paul even goes so far as to say that God is not opposed to removing by death a saint who will not respond to his discipline. Did you know this? Did you know this? He actually says some at Corinth Church received this most severe discipline because they continued to defame the table of remembering. 
Does our Lord take this table seriously? Man. Do you think our Lord still deals with those in his church this way? I can find nothing biblically to say that he does not. All the more reason that we come having examined ourselves well, right? But when God does discipline like this, we know that it's always for love's sake. For godly discipline, not for eternal condemnation, not a loss of salvation. And that in itself is an awesome declaration of God's grace. We're not only kept from eternal judgment by a glorious work of Jesus on the cross, but we are even kept from defaming the glorious work here at this table by the severe discipline of, of the Lord if it's needed. Wow. Even in the severity of these words, there is immense undeserved grace, and I hope we're all able to see that. Yes? I hope so. But Paul's point cannot be missed even by a first century Corinthian. God stands guard over this table. He loves what it stands for. He loves who it represents, who it honors, and anything less than a serious, careful approach on our part is to admit that we have failed to keep Jesus at the center. So Paul, in closing out this section of his letter, doesn't say, Hey, you Corinthians, you're so messed up. Don't come and eat together anymore and certainly don't come and and celebrate the table anymore. He doesn't say that. What he does say is this. When you come to the table of remembering, just be sure that you're doing it well. You're doing it rightly. In the unity of the Spirit. with with hearts focused on Jesus, with careful examination as an act of loving worship and with gratitude to God for what Jesus has done in your life for you. Amen? Amen. Are we now ready to approach this table? Are you ready? Let's do that. And if we follow this admonition out of 1 Corinthians 11, then what we know we want to do first is examine our hearts. And so we want to give you that opportunity. I'm going to take that opportunity myself. Let's, in the quiet of this moment, let's, let's draw before our Lord and let's, let's examine ourselves. Let's take a hard look at who we are and what we are and what we're doing. Not in these walls, but outside of these walls. Bring what you discover by the Holy Spirit's revealing. Bring it to Jesus and place it under the blood of Jesus so that we will together uh, celebrate the table in the right way. Let's examine.